You're listening to another hope-filled podcast from Life. For more information about our church, visit lifenz.org. It's good to be here. Uh, hello to everyone in the hangar online. Uh, I just know God's going to do some great things uh, with us this morning. Uh, a little bit of my story. Uh, I grew up in Melbourne. Uh, don't hold that against me. Uh, but uh, I grew up, my parents uh, divorced when I was about five. Uh, my mum did drugs. Uh, my dad did lots of drugs. Uh, we would go and stay with my dad on a Friday night. He'd have 20 of his friends over and they'd all be partying and smoking marijuana. And uh, Most of my aunties and uncles did drugs. Even some of my grandparents did drugs. You know you're in trouble when granddad smokes bongs, okay? That's a... Yeah, you, I do that joke to see how naughty the crowd is. And you guys laughed a lot more than the first service and I'm starting to wonder why you came a little late. Anyway, no. Imagine the next service. But anyway, uh, but uh, I followed in my dad's footsteps and uh, at about 12 or 13, I started to smoke cigarettes, binge drinking, uh, marijuana. By the time I was 15, I was injecting speed, uh, taking acid, ecstasy, little bits of heroin. Uh, at 16, I took an acid trip at a house where they were involved in satanic worship and I actually overdosed and had a very demonic experience Uh, That left me with what psychologists would have diagnosed as drug-induced psychosis, where for three or four years, the television would speak to me, the radio would speak to me. I'd hear voices in my head uh, every day, uh, demonic voices telling me that I should kill myself. I'm going to share that part of my story uh, at the end, the last 10 minutes of the service. It's a bit of a freaky out there story. Uh, But long story short, from 13 uh, to 23, I used drugs almost every day of my life. Uh, I've got a photo of what I look like, if we could put that up on the screen. Uh, There I am, uh, making a cake. Uh, I can't tell you what's in the cake. (laughs) See, now you're all coming out of the closet. I told you the 1015 service. Anyway, um, but there I am, I'm 63 kilos. Uh, You you could take that down because that is embarrassing. Um, But uh, I had an auntie who I'm going to preach a bit about this morning that that actually prayed for me for 17 years that I would encounter the love of Jesus. And and every birthday, she would send me a birthday card that had a Bible verse in it, Jeremiah 29, 11, which says, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, but to give you a hope and a future. And down the bottom, it would say, Jesus loves you. And if I'd be really honest with you, I was 23, I was partying, living on the Gold Coast. I'd moved from Melbourne. And I remember reading the card thinking, yep, She's a Christian crackpot, and sort of just threw the card to the side. It was about two weeks later. I was dressed in nightclub clothes. It was a Saturday night. I had organized a score ecstasy at this nightclub. My mum rings me, and she says, you never even rang your auntie to say thank you for the card. And so just to get my mum off my back, I thought, I'll quickly ring her. It'll just take 30 seconds. I pick up the phone, and she answers. She says, hello, hello. And the only way I can describe it is as soon as I heard her voice, It was literally like heaven opened up and the love of the Father tangibly came from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. And I was so overwhelmed by this presence that I'd never felt before that I was actually faced with a dilemma. And really I had two options in that very moment, but both were a dilemma. The first was this, I knew that I was so overwhelmed that if I said hello back to her, I was going to literally break down and start crying. And who knows that for a 23-year-old male, that is a dilemma. Or two, if I didn't uh, cry like a baby, I was going to have to prank call my Christian Baptist auntie. 
So I mean, the only thing I could do is I grabbed the phone and I started going, and uh, I didn't really, it's okay, I'm, I'm, I'm from Australia, but I'm not a freak. Uh, I cried like a baby in that moment, and for the very first time, she led me in a prayer to invite Jesus Christ into my heart. Uh, I, I went to church the next day, and I publicly made a decision for Jesus, and, and I was fully born again and fell in love with God, but I still had this 10-year addiction that I was battling with. And See, who knows that you can be fully born again and love Jesus, but still have stuff going on in your life? It's called being a human being. And it's why we need a saviour. His name is Jesus. And, and, and so I was a few weeks into my Christianity, and, and, but struggling with this addiction, cigarettes, marijuana, many other things. And I'd only been in two sermons my whole life. And I heard the pastor say there was nothing that God couldn't do. And so one Saturday night, I was at home and I started to pray. And I said, God, the pastor said there's nothing that you can't do. God, I want you to take this addiction away from me. It had gripped me my whole life and I got on my hands and knees and, and, and literally as I prayed and hit the ground, uh, faith began to rise. See, faith began to rise because a lady had been praying for 17 years. And, and as faith began to rise, I hit the ground. I said, God, when will you do it? When will you take this thing away from me? Three weeks I'd been a Christian. And as I said, when will you do it? As clear as day, I hear this voice that says 726. I sort of stood up a bit startled, thinking, what in the world does that mean? And I hadn't looked at my clock for a couple hours. And as I'm thinking, what does it mean? I caught a glimpse of my kitchen clock, and it was exactly 726. And it was at that moment I knew that I knew that I knew that I would never need drugs again, never need cigarettes again, never had a desire, never had a withdrawal. <laughs> you know, the thing that I love is that what took the devil 23 years of his downward, dysfunctional, demonic cycle just took my God one word. One word to say it's done, it's finished, it's broken. And I don't need to be a prophet to know that in this room, there'll be people, you've got stuff going on on the inside. Can I tell you, it's not just cliche. One word from heaven can literally change everything. One encounter in His presence can change everything. You know, the, uh, in that moment, I, uh, God spoke to me as I lay on my lounge room floor about many things that were going to happen in my life, and they all came to pass. Uh, I don't have time to tell them all, but one of the night before this encounter, I'm two weeks in church, and I'm in a little Bible study. There's like six of us, and all these young adults start turning up to the church dressed in fancy dress. I said to the guy, what's going on? And he said, I was just one of the girls. She's having a party and it's fancy dress. And as he was telling me, the girl having the party walked into our room where we're doing the Bible study to get something out of a cupboard for her party. And she was dressed as Barbie. You know, like Barbie doll. She, she had Barbie hair, Barbie skirt, Barbie bag, Barbie shoes, the whole Barbie thing going on. She walks in. I started drooling a little bit. Uh, I said, how you doing? Uh, she ignored me because I looked like the cake guy. And that was the end of my Barbie experience. I've been in counseling ever since. No, no. Uh, she went off and had her party. I finished my Bible study. The next night, I had this crazy God encounter, 726, set free from drugs. As I lay on the floor, Holy Spirit speaks to me. He says, Lucas, the girl you saw last night, she's the girl you're going to marry. I said, God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. God, send me. I will go. And so the next day, I got up and I changed my name to Ken. And no, I didn't really. <laughs> It took her a year and a half to come to her senses and see what she was missing out on. No, 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 no. It took me a year and a half to be even close to being ready for a godly functional relationship. 
Uh, but we've now been married 17 years. And I got a photo of what Barbie looked like that night. There she was, 23. And let me quickly show you what happens when you marry Barbie. There we go. God's just been so incredible. And, and I've got a little bit of resource. And this one in particular, you're going to hear 10 minutes of my, my story, the part that's crazy at the end. This here is for you to get to give to someone else. So if you know someone that relates to my story, this is a resource. You might not be able to get them here yet, but you can get this to them. And I've had so many people email me and say that they fully got born again in their car or at home. And this is, that's what this is for, to give to someone else. And then there's uh, 14 messages here that really minister a lot to brokenness, to speak faith and life. Tonight at 6 o'clock, I'm going to do a different message and really minister to fear and anxiety. So if you know someone that needs a breakthrough in that area, uh, that'll be a good night to come. Uh, but I want to quickly talk 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, before we read it, let me tell you what's happening in this place of history. Saul was the first king of Israel, but really he gave in to his own sinful nature. And Saul eventually ends up with the enemy surrounding him. And rather than allow them to, to kill him and make sport of him, he deliberately falls on his sword. He takes his own life. On the same day, his son Jonathan is also killed in battle. Jonathan happened to be best friends with David. Now, David finally becomes the king, and one of the first things he does as king is found here in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. It says, David asked, Is there anyone still left from the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And rather than read the whole chapter, let me tell you what happens. There is a servant named Ziba, and he says, Well, actually, Jonathan has a son called Mephibosheth who's crippled in both of his feet. He lives in a place called Lodabar. This young crippled boy is brought before the king and he's petrified. He thinks he's about to be executed because he's related to the previous king. But when he arrives, David says, fear not. He says, I'm actually going to give you back the land that your grandfather Saul lost. I'm going to give you servants to work the land. And the coolest part of the story, he says, and from now on, you will sit at my table as if you were one of the king's sons. The thing I love is the Old Testament is often a shadow of what is to come. And this particular story is a shadow of God's plan for you and I. It's a shadow of the plan for the church. And that would be sort of cool if this is a parable that God made up and then said, hey, surprise, there's a hidden message in the, the story I made up. But this is three generations of history that just naturally unfold. And God says, surprise, my plan is woven into the very fabric of history. Now, I'm going to need some volunteers. I've got my three people that are generations. And then I'm going to ask Tim if you could come and stand on this side. And if I could get my other guys over this side, that'd be really cool. And again, you can just go oldest further away from me uh, to youngest, and you guys can fight about that. I think they're leaving you down the end. I'm sorry, sir. Well, he's even put himself at the end. I don't know about that one. Hey, anyway, all right. Anyway, all right. We are in church, so we should have faith. Anyway, uh, but all right, what we've got here is we've got three generations, okay? We've got Grandfather Saul. I'm sorry, sir. Grandfather Saul. We've got his son, Jonathan. And then we've got his son, Mephibosheth, okay? And over here, I chose Tim deliberately to be David because the Bible says that David was handsome. And, and hang on a sec. And we're in church, so I've got to tell the truth, okay? In the first service, we used Ollie, the young adult pastor, but Tim came up to me after the service and he said, come on, I'm way better looking than Ollie. And, and I just thought, I sh- so uh, I'm just joking, but here we go, maybe. Uh, 
three generations, all right, we've got the first of this generation, uh, Saul. And we often think about Saul because he did such a bad job that he wasn't God's chosen king. But Saul was chosen by God and God wanted Saul to be a great king, to rule, have authority and dominion. Saul, the first of this generation, is a picture of the very first man who God also chose. God wanted Adam to rule, reign, have authority and dominion. But Adam too gave into his sinful nature and lost everything God wanted him to have. The first of this generation is a picture of the first man, the first Adam. The second, Jonathan, is a picture of the second Adam. Or the Bible calls him the last Adam in Jesus Christ. See, if you go back a few chapters, Jonathan has this moment with David And Jonathan comes and he lays down his robe, his belt, and his sword. And see, in that day, everybody knew it was Jonathan's birthright to inherit the kingdom. But as he laid down those things, he's saying to David, although the kingdom is mine to claim, I recognise what the Spirit of God is doing and I lay down what is mine for the good of God the Father and for the good of everybody else. See, Jonathan is a picture of Jesus Christ, who could have come 2,000 years ago to claim back what was his. But rather than claim it back, he came to lay down his very life for the good of God the Father and for the good of everybody else. Uh, The third in this story, we've got the first Adam, the last Adam. Mephibosheth represents everybody to come after Jesus Christ. He's living in a place called Lodabar, which means place of desolation. He's crippled. In other words, he cannot get to where he needs to be which is an intimate relationship with God. It's not even his fault that he's crippled because of his grandfather's sin. When they flee, he is dropped, symbolic of a generation that live in this city that are crippled by something called sin that stops them being where they need to be, which is an intimate relationship with God. And it's not even their fault. It goes back to the very first man in Adam. And now every human being is born crippled by sin. But then the greatest part of the story is David, and we read it, who represents God the Father. He says, who can I bless from the house of Saul for the sake of Jonathan? But what he's really saying is who that's crippled by sin, who that's living in a place of desolation, could I invite to sit at my table as a son or daughter of the Most High God for the sake of my precious son, Jesus Christ. Can we give these guys a big round of applause? See, we had, if it's the full plan, we had God the Father, we had God the Son. My mind says, well, where's the Holy Spirit? And my mind races a bit too, because Mephibosheth, he was poor, and he lived in the poor side of town, Lodabar. David lived in the rich part of town, so geographically there was a great distance. How did this young crippled boy that had no money get to the king's palace? And it's not a far stretch. We see in the text that the king wanted him to appear, so one of the king's servants would have been ordered to bring this boy to the king. The servant in the story who knew everything about this family and where he lived was a servant called Ziba. And if you trace Ziba's name back in the Hebrew, you eventually come to the words army or Lord's army. See, it's the Lord's army that is to leave the palace to go to the place of desolation, to find people crippled by sin and carry them to their destiny and their inheritance in the house of God. He said, where's the Holy Spirit? Well, Acts 1.8 says the role of the Holy Spirit, in my own words, is so that, that, that believers would have dynamic power to be effective witnesses everywhere they go. 
Where was the Holy Spirit? He was on the Lord's army, anointing and empowering the Lord's army to carry someone to their destiny and their inheritance. See, I'm so thankful I had an auntie that wasn't just into doing fellowship every Sunday although it's incredibly important. I'm so thankful that I had an auntie that wasn't just into listening to the Word of God every week, although it's incredibly important. I'm thankful that I had an auntie that knew that she was part of the Lord's army, that she was anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And even if it took 17 years, she was going to carry this crippled, broken boy until I found my place sitting at the king's table, partaking of destiny and inheritance. This message is called Carry Them to the Table. And I want to give you three quick things that my auntie did to bring me to the place of salvation. The first one is this. She firstly, she, and there are also three things, sort of, that Jesus does. I'll explain the sort of at the end. But the first thing she did is she simply came down to where I was at. You know, when I was at my worst, 16 and 19, injecting a lot of speed, which is sort of like pee here in New Zealand. And there were times when I'd been awake for three days without any sleep. After three days of no sleep, and I can remember these times, I'd licked my lips compulsively so much because my brain was going so fast that my lips had become giant scabs. I scratched myself with paranoia in my arms and it was scabs and marks on my face and arms. After three days of no sleep, you look like death warmed up. You're a scattered brain and you hardly make any sense at all. But you know what? I can't remember an occasion where my auntie came to visit me when I was in that state and I felt worse after her visit because she never rode in on her Christian high horse. She never rode in telling me how bad I was, telling me how I was a terrible sinner. But every time, I just needed to look in the mirror to know how bad life was. But every time she came, she came down to where I was at. She spoke a language that I could understand. She came down to where I was at so that she could help take me to where I need to be. See, when we start to judge where everybody else is at, it says more about us than it does about them. It says that I've simply forgotten that I once had the same disease. It might have manifested in a different way, but I had a disease that was going to keep me separated from God for all of eternity. But somebody came down to where I was at. I said, Jesus does the same thing. He, I'm so thankful that we serve a God that didn't just stay up in heaven and say, hey, when you get your act up to my standard, then we can start to do relationship. No, we serve a God that said, let me come down to your mess. Let me come down to your addiction. Let me come down to your brokenness. Let me come down to where you're at so that I can help take you to where you need to be. The second thing my auntie did is she simply embarrassed us with generosity. Matthew 5, 16. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, my auntie never had a lot of money, but I can't remember a time her turning up to our house empty-handed. She always bought a small gift or a card with beautiful words. Whenever we'd move houses, we didn't have money, a single mum family, to get the moving guys in or get the cleaners in to clean the house. It was always do it yourself. Of all my mum's brothers and sisters, she was always the first to arrive and the last to leave. She just made a decision that she would embarrass us with generosity until we gave praise to God in heaven. You know, I preached this exact message in a great church in Perth and there was a doctor in the crowd and he had all these drug addicts that would come to his practice and he had such a heart for them but just didn't know how to get them to church. He listened to this exact point, this moment in the message 
And he went straight from the service. And while everyone else was going for lunch, he went to the supermarket. He filled his entire car, his boot and his back seat with groceries. He knew where one of these young drug addicts lived and uninvited turned up to his house. The shock of the young drug addict when he opens his door and it's his doctor standing there with groceries. And he says, listen, I just wanted to bless you. And he made about three or four trips from the car to the field, his fridge, his freezer and his pantry. The, the young boy was in disbelief. And at the end of it, he said to him, you need to understand that what I've done today is completely unconditional. There's nothing you have to do in return. He said, I wanted to ask though, and there's no pressure. But tonight we've got this guy with a bit of a crazy story at our church. And I was just wondering if you'd like to be my special guest. Guess who the first young man standing at that altar that night, receiving Jesus for the first time in his life. I watched the tears run down his cheek. See, it's not rocket science. Just keep embarrassing people with generosity and eventually they'll give praise to God in heaven. You can use your words, your hands and your wallet. I love that Jesus did the same, does the same in Romans 5.8. It says, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to get our act together and then say, now I'll go to the cross. And No, no, no. When we were at our worst, he said, let me go to the cross so that we could have the gift that we don't deserve, the gift that we haven't earned, the gift that we get to keep unwrapping for the next eternity called salvation. The last thing, and I want to share this part of my story just so the keyboard it comes. The, the last thing that my auntie did that, that, that I'm the most thankful about is she simply prayed. For 17 years, she prayed for my salvation. She wasn't super Christian. She didn't do it every day, but consistently for 17 years. You know, She's told me the prayer that she prayed, the exact word for word. I'm a Pentecostal. I love the Holy Spirit. You know, she didn't pray in any other sort of language. There was no keyboard in the background when she prayed. She'd just get down on her hands and knees each night and she prayed the same prayer. It went like this. She's told me. She said, God, I see what the devil's doing in his life, but I pray that you would make him a giant killer. So she prayed. For, she didn't pray I'd just get saved. She didn't pray I'd one day end up in a church. She prayed for 17 years that I'd become a giant killer. From the moment I got born again, I almost immediately found myself in ministry, at least in serving. And it wasn't long before I was on team. Youth pastor, young adult pastor, campus pastor. The last seven years, I've been traveling all over the world. I've seen more than 10,000 people give their lives to Jesus Christ. I've seen thousands of people have radical supernatural encounters with the Holy Spirit where they've been set free of anxiety, depression, addictions, sexual abuse, all kinds of things. I don't tell you that story to make myself sound good, but just to show you all I'm doing is riding the wave of 17 years of prayer. See, the reason I'm so thankful that she prayed is because of the story I'm about to share. I've got to warn you, whether you're new to church or not, this is a bit of a freaky story. But there's no other way I can tell it. It's just the way that I perceived it to happen. I was 16 years old and I was with this girl and we were going to take a drug together that night called acid. If you don't know, acid is a hallucinogenic. It's a mind-altering drug. We went to this house to buy it and the guys that we bought it off were older than us and they were involved in satanic worship. It was the early 90s. There were posters in this bedroom where we went of, of demons and bands like Slayer and 
satanic symbols, which wasn't that uncommon back in the early 90s, the people that I sort of hung around with. We bought this drug and these older guys, I said, well, why don't you stay the night and take the acid trip here with us? So in this very demonic environment, we take this acid trip. And after about half an hour, I end up completely unconscious on that bedroom floor. And although in a physical sense I was unconscious, in my mind's eye, I was very awake. And all of a sudden, this darkness, this evil came over my entire being. An evil that I could never in my wildest dreams imagine existed. I wasn't religious. I sort of believed maybe there was a God. But then this being appeared before me in my mind's eye. And he literally dripped with evil. And he spoke to me. He said, Lucas, you're dead. Nobody likes you. Nobody loves you. Nobody wants your soul. Who do you want to give your soul to? And then like a lawyer, I was put on trial. Of every wrong thought, every selfish thought, every lustful thought, every hateful thought, every time I'd done the wrong thing, it was put before me and proven, why would anyone want this sinful soul? And then he'd keep coming back to that point of who do you want to give your soul to as if he was the only one that would take it. I didn't know what to do, but something knew not to let go. Eventually I went to this next phase where now I was in total darkness and I was tormented like I could never, ever properly articulate. Ridiculed, teased, mocked, laughed at. Like I was the butt of every single joke, pure hatred and evil. You know what the most tormenting thing about the whole experience was? I've actually always been a good talker. I talked a lot of people into doing the wrong things. Thankfully, now I talk them into doing the right thing. But I was always a really good talker. And the thing was, I tried to talk my way out of this situation, but I knew that I knew that I knew that I was guilty. See, because the reality is we're all guilty. And the only thing that makes you innocent is the blood of Jesus Christ. And at that particular time, I didn't know about the blood of Jesus. Eventually, I went to this third and final stage where I was, saw my body thrown into this disgusting pit, like a piece of meat that was discarded that nobody wanted. Thrown into this disgusting pit, and I literally saw these demon creatures coming down, ferocious and ugly, and they were ripping my soul apart. I remember being that 16-year-old boy, and I remember screaming, because I thought it was over. I remember screaming, thinking, this can't be it. This can't be the end of my life. I'm just 16 years old. And as I was just about no more, I woke up on that bedroom floor. I got out of that house as quick as you can imagine. I don't know why I remember this part, but I remember it so clear. I remember being at home about one in the morning. I went into the house where I lived with my mum. I remember leaning against my bunk beds. And I actually remember thinking, that felt like the realest thing that I'd ever encountered in my entire life. It was realer than real. But then I thought it couldn't be real. It's just what they call a bad trip. Two weeks later, I was out with some friends. We were going to a bar. It was called the Cantina Bar in North Melbourne. I'm sitting in the back seat on the passenger side, minding my own business. I'm not on drugs now. My friend is next to me in the middle seat and completely randomly, he turns to me and he says, just out of the blue, he says, I heard you met the devil the other week. And as soon as he said those words, it was like that same evil physically came over my whole being. And as he said those words, I was paralyzed in fear. 
I couldn't answer his question. I couldn't move. I was literally for just a moment, I was paralysed in fear. He's just asked about the devil at the front of the cantina bar. He then looks at me, but it was like he looked into me. And he said, guess who's going to be at the cantina bar tonight? And it was literally like that evil spoke through him directly to me saying, I'm still here. For the next three or four years of my life, I would have been diagnosed with drug-induced psychosis. Where the television would answer my questions, my thoughts. The radio would answer my thoughts. I'd hear this voice every day saying, no one likes you, no one loves you. You should kill yourself. The thing that makes it more crazy than it already is, is this voice convinced me that who I met was not the devil, but I believed I'd met God Almighty. And He took pleasure in my torment. And every day I'd go to school and pretend everything was normal and I'd hear that voice say, no one likes you, no one loves you, you should kill yourself. And every day I'd get in my thoughts, I'd I'd ask this question, I'd say, well, hang on, if you're God and you control everything and you want me to kill myself, then why didn't I just die that night when I was on the acid trip? Why didn't I stay there forever? And as sharp as anything, that voice would come back and say, because I hate you so much, I'm going to torment you here on earth and then I'm going to take you and torment you for the whole of eternity. As a 16 and 19 year old boy, there were so many nights that I literally cried myself to sleep in absolute hopelessness. Eventually at 19 years old, it just got too much and I couldn't take it anymore. And I made a decision to end my life. I worked out how I was going to do it, when I was going to do it. I was a week or two away from ending my life and I'm sitting at home and of all shows I was watching, Oprah Winfrey. (laughs) Oprah saved my life. It wasn't Dr. Phil, it was Oprah. And on her show, the people that were on the show had actually physically died for one minute, two minutes, three minutes. They'd flatlined in a hospital, clinically dead. And they're all there to talk about what they saw in those few moments of death. And everybody sort of said the same thing. It was very new age. It was talked about a white tunnel that was full of light. They sort of went in full of peace and went in and then they came out. And I was actually getting annoyed, only half watching, thinking, well, I didn't see no tunnel. I didn't feel no peace. At the end of the show, a man in the crowd, he puts his hand up and he says, Oprah, my story is very different to your guests. Can I share it? She says, you've got two minutes. And he says, I was a college professor in the United States. And he says, I was a staunch atheist, which means he believed 100% there's no God. He was traveling through Europe on a vacation. He had a perforation in his intestines. They exploded. He was rushed to a hospital and on the operating table, he clinically died. To his shock as a staunch atheist, he couldn't believe it, but his soul and his spirit left his body. And he was watching the doctors operate on his open stomach. He then said these beings came to meet him and they started to take him away from where his body was. He said, the further we got away, I started to realise that these beings weren't nice. They began to mock me. They began to tease me. They began to laugh at me. They began to beat me. And then he said something that just rocked my world because I felt so alone for so long. I never told one person what was going on up here. He said, they turned into these demon creatures and they began to rip my soul apart. Daytime television, Oprah Winfrey. And then he said something that changed my life forever. He said, as I was just about no more, a little voice on the inside said, ask God for help. And an atheist professor prayed the first prayer that he'd ever prayed in his entire life. As demons were ripping his soul apart, he's clinically dead. He said, God, if you're real, can you help me out of this situation? And he woke up on the operating table with defibrillators on his chest and he gave glory to Jesus Christ on Oprah Winfrey. 
It was in that moment that I realised the answer to my question about why I didn't die that night and I received such a hopeless, demonic answer. But it was at that moment I realised the reason I didn't die is because there was actually a God in heaven who was the King of Kings, who loved me and who had a plan and a destiny for my life. That moment changed my life. It stopped the psychosis. It was three years later that I fully got born again. But since I've been a Christian a little while, I've come to realise that that truth that helped me so much, theologically, it was true. I realised that day that there was a higher being. But if my theology says the reason I didn't die that night was because God loved me and had a plan for me, then you've got to ask the question, why do drug addicts die every single day? Doesn't God have a plan for them? Doesn't God love them? The Bible says He does. Why do people in retirement homes die every minute of every day without the love of Jesus? Doesn't God love them? Doesn't God have a plan for them? The Bible says He does. And see, what I've become convinced of is the only reason that I'm standing here preaching at Life Church in Auckland in the flesh. The only reason that I'm not just a little article in the local paper that would have talked about another young addict that was lost in the battle of addiction. The only reason that today I'm not just a photo on my mother's mantelpiece that would have been my debutante ball photo, my ugly green suit and way too much gel in my hair. And 20 odd years later, people would have come to my mum's house and they would have saw the old photo and they said, who's the boy? And my mum with tears in her eyes would have talked about her boy that really was a good kid, but one night he took a drug and we never got to see him again. See, the only reason I'm here in the flesh, the only reason I'm not that article, the only reason I'm not that photo, the only reason is because I had one of the Lord's army that stood before heaven, that stood in between hell and myself and continue to appear before heaven and say, Father, don't you forget my nephew, Lucas Connell. He's gonna be a giant killer. Father, I'm back again. Don't forget my nephew, Lucas Connell. He's gonna be a giant killer. See, remember I said, Jesus sort of does these things. My auntie came down to where I was at, so does Jesus. My auntie embarrassed me with generosity, so does Jesus. My auntie stood in the gap and prayed for my salvation. Jesus didn't. The Bible says that Jesus intercedes for the saints, but He's banking on the fact that the saints would be so moved by the love He has for us that we would push apathy to the side, that we would not just live for materialistic things, that we would occasionally turn off the television and go into a room where nobody else is watching and stand before heaven and say, Father, I'm so moved by the love You have for me. I'm here on behalf of my children, in behalf of my family, on behalf of my street, on behalf of my workplace, on behalf of my city. See, my question for you is, who will you carry? Who will you not judge? Who will you use your resource, your words, your hands and your wallet? And who will you stand in the gap and be the one that prays for that person until they're sitting at the table partaking of their destiny and their inheritance. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from Life. If you have questions or want to contact someone about this message, visit lifenz.org.